This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas and personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Mind Valley Podcast. So today's topic is something that we are obsessed with. It's because if you go to life.mindvalley.com and take the Mind Valley Life Book Assessment, this is a 12-category assessment where you self-assess your life in 12 different categories. It's designed by John Butcher. Well, here's the funny thing, right? You know what's the number one category that people rank themselves the lowest in? It's their financial life. Second, relationships. It's why so many of us have difficulties with money and so many of us have difficulties with love. It's the two bottommost categories of everyone, tens of thousands of people taking this assessment. So we wanted to look at financial life and figure out how can we go deep and bring you some incredible thought leaders and thinkers from our guest today, Garrett Gunderson, to our previous guests like Ramit Sethi and Phil Town to help you really nail this part of your life. Now, Garrett Gunderson is unique in one particular way. Not only is he a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant thinker and an advisor to many highly successful people, but as you know, the life book assessment is designed by John and Missy Butcher. Garrett Gunderson is their personal financial advisor. In addition to that, he is an entrepreneur, a financial advocate, and author. He's dedicated his career to making personal finance for entrepreneurs simple, actionable, and enjoyable. He's the chief wealth architect at his company, Wealth Factory, and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Killing Sacred Cows. You've seen him on ABC's Good Money, Your World with Neil Cavuto on Fox, CNBC, Squawk on the Street, First Business, hundreds of radio shows, and his firm was named in the Inc. 500. So welcome to the Mind Valley Podcast. I'm Vishen Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast. Garrett, welcome to the Mind Valley Podcast. Hey, it's good to be with you, man. Good to see you again. So other than the fact that you wrote some really remarkable books, we've known each other for about 10 years, right? Killing Sacred Cows. That's a great book. Subtitle, Overcoming the Financial Myths That Are Destroying Prosperity. But other than your books and also your wonderful sense of humor, I recently saw you do a stand-up comedy act that was wicked funny. One of the coolest facts about you, Garrett, is that you are John Butcher's financial advisor. Right. I met him in 2008. What a year to meet someone. When you think about it, like in 2008, the market's down. But John's very wealthy, very successful. And we sit down, he and Missy and I, at the Four Seasons in Chicago, and he's complaining about the stress he's facing in his financial life. So I dig in a little bit. And what I find is like 170th of his net worth is tied up in a retirement plan that's underperforming and it's starting to go down. And the problem is when it's going down, it's driving scarcity into his mind. And he's a brilliant man. So I'm like, why do you even invest in this? 
And he said, because that's what everyone told me to do. I said, well, let's just dig in a little bit. Number one, I found out he's brilliant at art. And I'm like, why aren't you investing in art more? Right. He actually sold a Warhol early because of this cash flow thing with the investment. So the second thing is he was really good with wine. And number three is really good with property. And so what I helped him uncover was his investor DNA. And I said, look, you don't need to invest in a retirement plan. You can invest in these other things. And then if the wine thing doesn't work out and the economy's bad, at least you have something to drink to take your mind off of it, right? Like the bottom line was I gave him permission to invest in his own unique style versus what the rest of the world was telling him. He doesn't need to put his money in the stock market at all. And by freeing up his mind, it could be more abundant. And that is wonderful advice. Investing in your own unique style. I looked at the example of John because John's an artist, right? That's who he is in his heart. And so I love that you got him to take money out of that retirement fund and put it into art. And I've seen the results he's gotten from investing in art. Now let's go into that idea for a moment. How do we figure out our investment style? Okay, so it's important to understand risk is not in the investment. Risk is in the investor. So it's how we relate to those investments. So our investor DNA comes down to number one, what are our values? What is it that we really value in this world? Because we're going to pay more attention to it and it's going to matter to us. We can actually vote with our dollars on the things that we value. Number two, what are our competencies? What are those things that we have natural inclinations towards, the things that we have gifts and abilities? And then number three, when we really look at what are our drivers, what are we going to pay attention to, talk about, get inspired by, regardless of whether it's an investment or not, when we take those three things and then we add focus, focus in dot instead of diversification. Diversification for far too many people is diversification. We get spread thin. We get disconnected from our investments. We don't relate to it. We don't know what's going on. So we focus instead of diversify, which Andrew Carnegie said he put all of his eggs in one basket and watched it like a hawk. Focus rather than diversify. But doesn't that set you up for risk? I mean, think about if you've put all your money into property or if you put all your money into stocks and it's October 2018. All right. I love it because here's the bottom line. Most people neglect building their foundation and their safety measures, and they jump too quickly to the investment. <laughs> like I get giddy about this kind of stuff because here's the deal. Before we invest a single dollar, what if we just became more efficient with our money? There's four main places where people can create massive efficiency and get guaranteed returns. Number one, 93% of entrepreneurs overpay on their taxes. 93% of entrepreneurs? No, wait. You're talking about American taxpayers like you and me or everyone? American, Canadians. We've done some research in Australia. We've done research in the UK. So I haven't researched the entire world. But think about this. Our research just in America alone was $11,430 of overpayment per quarter million of revenue. So think about that return. With insight and within 20 minutes, if we find that money, that's money that comes into their life every single year, that's not risky, that's riskless, and it's coming right back to them. Wow, okay, go on. Okay, so taxes is the first efficiency. The second one is interest. So if people have more than one loan, they have a four and five chance that they're overpaying on their interest. And so we wanna show them how can they renegotiate the interest rate? How can they reallocate? Because maybe they have some investment that's underperforming and it's not even earning the interest that the loan is costing them. So if they cash out the investment and pay off the loan, that's a guaranteed return once again. It's gonna improve cash flow. They've got savings. And as rudimentary as that is, I'm telling you, you can't believe how many people do this. Like I have a buddy that was complaining about a 6% interest rate on a line of credit. 
And I said, how much is line of credit? He said, 170 grand. I said, just tell me, do you have any savings plans? Do you have anything that's not performing? He said, well, I have a $300,000 certificate of deposit. I said, well, why don't you cash out 170,000 of that? Because it's only earning 3%, pay off the 6%. That's 100% difference. He said, well, there's a penalty. I said, well, let's figure out what this penalty is. So we got online and we emailed the bank. And what they said was, well, you forfeit three months interest. So what that means is after 40 days, he's ahead. 40 days, that's the whole penalty. After that, he's got more money on a guaranteed basis. And then we could also restructure loans. So people can actually go refinance loans. There's four C's that help you do it. Number one, if you have good credit, you get your credit score up, which is pretty easy. Number two, you have the right collateral. So if you have a mortgage or you have a car loan, you get a lower interest rate on those, or you have the right cash flow reporting. So the banks look at you and go, hey, we like to lend you based upon what your numbers tell you. Or number four, you just have the right connections because some lenders work really well with business owners, others don't. So now we can actually go improve it from that standpoint. This is wild. For every quarter of a million dollars of revenue of people with more than two loans, the average freed up cash in this process is $2,484 per month. So dude, we haven't invested or taken any risk. We're just finding cash. As John would put it, why are you finding hundreds of thousands of dollars on my couch cushions? I mean, that's the bottom line is we want to find money before we try to sacrifice or scrimp. So out of curiosity, because I'm now starting to feel pain for not knowing this earlier. What does it take to hire a financial advisor? How do we know if we need to get a financial advisor? I certainly don't have one. We've got to make some distinctions here. There's retirement planners and there's financial advisors. And I don't even consider myself a financial advisor. I consider myself a financial architect, a financial advocate. I consider myself a financial nerd that's looking for the things that are most neglected in people's finances. Unfortunately, sometimes financial plans aren't worth the paper that they're printed on because they're trying to predict something unpredictable because they're telling you if you'll just scrimp, sacrifice, save, delay, take money and put it at risk. Here's the villain of the whole thing. They believe in this philosophy called accumulation, and accumulation is the enemy to wealth creation. Accumulation has this fundamental belief that if you want wealth, it's a function of three things. Number one, how much money do you have? Has anyone ever told you it takes money to make money? I mean, we heard this. The only people that tell us that are people that want our money. Whose money does it take to make money? That's a complete myth. It doesn't take money to make money. It takes value creation. It takes serving others. It takes solving problems. It takes being resourceful. And money is a byproduct of value creation. So it's dollars follow value. The second thing in this accumulation model that's problematic is risk. People are taught to take high risk to get high return. But the problem is the riskiest thing I could think of is the lottery. Well, if we go buy those tickets, we're not going to become wealthy. That's a tax on the poor. So risk doesn't equal return. Risk equals chance of loss. So we have to reduce risk by being more knowledgeable and using our investor DNA. And then the third thing is they tell people it's all about how much time you can take. They say if you invest early, often and always, then one day, someday, 30 years from now, far away from your control, then you get to live the good life. But unfortunately, that sacrifice has people miss out on quality of life. That sacrifice has people miss out on being more productive along the way because there's a different mentality between someone that's in a savings mindset and someone that's in a production mindset. And no one shrinks their way to wealth. So that accumulation mindset is the biggest problem. And if your financial advisor has it, no amount of luck, saving, discipline, rate of return, or anyone will save you because scarcity destroys wealth. And that's born and breeded by scarcity. Wow. Okay. So I feel, I don't know where to stop. I feel confused. 
Where do we begin? And honestly, for those of you listening, this is a genuine question. I wish I had spent more time understanding investing. I wish I had spent more time learning how to manage my money. I can tell you guys, honestly, first 10 years of being an entrepreneur, I fucked it up because I had no idea how to negotiate loans. I had no idea how to manage my finances. We just think we'll make more money, right? Let's just make more money. Isn't that the answer we always think as entrepreneurs? We'll just make more money. We'll just work hard. Exactly. Yes. And it was stupid. It was stupid. I lost millions of dollars by signing bad business deals. I lost hundreds of thousands of dollars, just theft, made lots of dumb mistakes. And one of the reasons you guys who are listening will notice that in the past month, we've released podcast interviews here on the Mind Valley podcast with Ramit Sethi of I Will Teach You To Be Rich, with Phil Town, the brilliant investor, now with Garrett Gunderson, is because I'm trying to learn this stuff. We're going in a world right now. And my last podcast with Phil Town, kind of Phil brought this up. So we're going into an era right now with crazy uncertainty and people are confused. We don't know which direction the stock market is going. We don't know what's going to happen to property. Ramit Sethi basically said that property is a dumb investment in the United States right now. I agree. It's going to go down. And so the question is, where do we put our money? And I would love for you, Garrett, to walk us through a couple of steps. Give us some idea on what we should be thinking about and how we should be playing this game. Okay, the good news is there's no reason to feel confused because I'm about to simplify it, that everyone can do this, okay? We have to make a distinction really quick. There's a difference between savings and investing, and unfortunately, the world has collapsed this, and we call investments saving vehicles, and they're not. We're in a time where liquidity, safety, and cash is going to be king. So I want everyone to go to where they're currently banking and set up a separate account. This account doesn't need to earn a high rate of return. It just needs to be available. So don't invest it. It's just savings. And I want you to create an automated structure that you're going to pay yourself first. There's a book written in the 1920s called Richest Man in Babylon. The whole thing George Clausen said is pay yourself first. And here's the deal. I want you to pay yourself first, but I'm going to help you find the money to put it in there. So this pay yourself first from the richest man in Babylon, can you explain it further? So this separate account is just a basic account separated from your personal checking, your business checking. See, when money is in a business account, the business can have an insatiable appetite and figure out ways to spend that money. So we're avoiding that commingling. There's something called Parkinson's law. And Parkinson's law says, as you have an increase in income, your expenses will rise to meet or exceed that increase within three to six months, unless there's a specific force against it. So all we're doing is creating an automated way for you to save money. And savings, even though they don't have a high rate of return, have a high impact on our mind. When we've got a lot of savings, there's peace of mind that comes with that. When we've got a lot of savings, we've got staying power. No reason to take on a bad client. No reason to get into cash crunches where you can't take care of your health or any of those kind of things. So all this is, is a checking or savings or money market account that you're separating from your personal account. So every time you get paid, you take a percentage off the top and you pay yourself. Now, the percentage that I recommend, even though this will be high, think progress over perfection, done is better than perfect, is 18%. Now, that 18% comes from saving tax, saving interest, saving non-performing investment fees and hidden costs, saving on insurance costs, and putting that in there. So it's not all on you. So let's do the math. So let's say you have a small business and you're doing 10,000 a month in profit. Okay, so you set aside an amount for taxes, which are going to be due, okay, in whatever country you're in. And then the post-tax amount, you would take 18% of that and put it in your savings account. Right. And you're just separating that. And it doesn't have to get a rate of return because savings is different than investing. Investing requires 
you know, there's potential volatility, there's potential timeframes before you could access your money. So it's illiquid. Savings is just there. It's available. Now, the reason it can have a rate of return is just one example. By having a savings account, you might be able to drop certain inconsequential insurances because you've got enough cash to handle it. That provides a rate of return, right? You're right. So what you mean by that is that you may be able to drop things such as life insurance. I mean, like raise your deductibles on your car and homeowners insurance, drop your short term disability insurance, be able to like cover the inconsequential things more so than the bigger things like life insurance. But that could give you a five or 10 percent return just having that cash there. Okay. technical question, just a technical question for our listeners in Europe. So I am also a European resident. And so what happens in Estonia is that it's a flat tax country. And so what happens is that my author business where I write my books is based partially in Estonia. So if I make a certain amount of money and I keep it in the business, there is no tax. But if I take it out, I'm hit with a 20% tax. So I've just been keeping it in the business. Did you have a sub account for the business? So you could just put it in a separate business account. So it's not. You put it in a sub account for the business. Got it. Okay. That's a smart hack. Exactly. So here's why 18%. I think it's really important. 3% is just to handle inflation, but inflation is going to be different than 3%. Another 3% because taxes fluctuate. In the United States right now, we're historically low. From 1913 to 2017, the top tax bracket on average was 61.7%. Right now, it's 37.5%. So if taxes change in the future, we want to be able to handle that. Another 3% for something called planned obsolescence. Planned obsolescence is like when I moved into my house, there was a dishwasher we had, and it was a Viking dishwasher. And I was like, that sounds like a good brand. No, dude, that was just Vikings licking the plates. They were never clean. We had to replace that sucker, right? That was no good. So that's planned obsolescence. You replace something, you might not be better off, but you're going to have those things to replace over time. Another 3% is for technological change. We have things now we didn't have in the past. So we know there's going to be things invented in the future. I want you to be prepared for that. And another 3% is for propensity to consume, which all that means is a luxury once enjoyed becomes a necessity. You and I aren't built anymore for staying in a motel. We got to stay in really, really nice places because it's much more enjoyable. But growing up, I stayed in like places I didn't know any different. So that's 15%. Now, if you hit 15%, I actually want you to set up one more account. And this is your living wealthy account. Benjamin Franklin said, wealth isn't just the man that has it, but the man that lives it. So if you've hit your 15%, the next 3% goes to an account that's for guilt-free spending. It's to enjoy your life along the way. It's to have that quality of life that lets you know, I'm on track, I get to go spend this on something I enjoy, just what I value. And other people might think you're crazy for spending it. Like, look, man, my dad drinks boxed wine. I'm not willing to drink wine from a box, you know? So back to that entrepreneur example, you've withdrawn $1,800 from your business. Let's keep it simple. Let's assume after paying taxes, you're left with 10K in profit. You withdraw $1,800 from your business. 1,500 you're putting in savings and 300 bucks you get to spend on luxury. Yeah, whatever you enjoy because it lets you know that you're doing the right things. It lets you feel that enjoyment. Got it, and you get to spend that right now. And when do you get to tap into the savings? So the savings, what we wanna do is get to at least six months of your personal expenses set aside that you're liquid for. Because look, all of us are in store for financial surprises. We can address 90% of those by proper preparation. And that's what people don't do. So when you have that six months, after six months, when you grow more in that account than that, that becomes your opportunity fund. That becomes your investable money. Yeah. See what you mean. Okay. Okay. And then we're yeah. going to go into where to invest that. Now, how does this translate to someone who is not an entrepreneur, but an employee of a company? Let's say someone earning 10K a month. How does that translate? 
you still do it exactly the same because the business owner is taking what they pay themselves. The employee is taking just what they're getting paid. So you're just going to set it aside in this account. And it's the same um, 18%. So you're saying put aside 18% of your salary. Yep. And it might take you some time to get there. And if you're an employee and you're saying right now, I'm barely making ends meet, I'm going paycheck to paycheck. We're going to go back and see where you can be efficient. But then number two is we want employees to become entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs understand how they contribute to the bottom line and they get to participate in the upside. We're a production-based economy at Wealth Factory, meaning we pay really relatively low salaries in the marketplace. But most of our people, I would say 75% of our payroll comes from bonuses and incentives when people contribute to it where they're directly tied to it. So we want to teach employees to do that so they have that upside potential that allows them to start growing their assets and their wealth. I see. Okay, so now you've hit six months. You have enough savings to cover six months of living expenses in case you hit a bump in the road, in case the business goes stagnant for six months or you lose your job, God forbid, for six months. Okay, so you have that safety. Now you start putting money to invest. How do we know where to invest? So this is where it's very unique for each person. Like if someone went through Phil Towns program, they became really proficient at a few stocks. I love that he's against mutual funds. So am I. And instead is saying you've got to become knowledgeable. For me, I actually do the same things banks do with part of my money. Above six months, I actually allocate it towards private placement, life insurance programs, overfunded insurance contracts. Because what it does is you get a tax advantage. So now I'm only getting maybe four or five percent. It's nothing too exciting, but it's tax advantaged. It's available to me. So it's a better place to store that money until the right opportunities come. And all of us are going to have a good number of opportunities in our life. Most people miss those opportunities because they don't have cash. There was Malcolm Gladwell wrote this article in The New Yorker, and he featured Ted Turner in the article. And he said, Ted Turner's a completely different investor. He called him predatory. I don't love that term, but what he meant was, he sat in cash for extended periods of time with patients. And then when the market turned and they needed liquidity, he was their provider. He's the one that gave them the money. And now he owns more land in Montana than anyone in history. He owns you know, all these different companies because he buys them because he wants to make money on the buy. That's what I want people to remember in their head. You want to invest and you're not trying to speculate or wait for 10 years for it to pay off. You want to buy something that you already know is profitable from day one. So if a business came up that Mind Valley knew how to monetize because of the customer base, because of the offerings. And all of a sudden the market changes. You go, we just picked that up for a song for one third of what it was really worth. And then all of a sudden you're profitable in it. That could be a complete investment for you where maybe real estate may not be because you don't want to take the time to work on loans or property managers. Right. So what you're saying is avoid real estate. Well, the reason to avoid real estate is because if interest rates go up, real estate's going to go down. If you're going to invest, you got to treat it like a business. And if you and I are totally focused on our business, and then we try to do something like real estate on the side, we're going to be competing against people where that's their entire business. It's absolutely tough. But what about stocks? Phil Town spoke in our last podcast extensively about stocks. What's your take on it, especially as an investment vehicle this year? I invest zero dollars in stocks. The only stocks I invest in are Ripwater, Wealth Factory, and Wealth Labs because I'm the controlling interest in those. See, when Warren Buffett invests in stocks, he owns the company. He's not a speculator going, I think this is going to go up. Now, if you're going to invest in stocks, Phil Towns is the program to go through. Love what he's teaching because he's teaching to really analyze companies that you're in love with and that you're figuring out. But for me, that's not my investor DNA. I've made more money growing my businesses and then capturing the wealth for my businesses along the way. That's the step. You want to take money and capture it and get it out of the business so the business doesn't gobble it up. 
I see what you mean. Okay, because I remember now a conversation we had 10 years ago. I can't remember if you told me this or if I read it in your book, Killing Sacred Cows, but I believe what you said, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, that the best investment is investing in your own business. Right. Well, look, 92% of people worth 5 million or more have the commonality that they own a business. Most financial books neglect the value of a business because what I like about business is it's three-dimensional. Number one, the less your business relies upon you, the more equity you have. The more cash flow that your business generates, the more benefit you get now and the more equity you have. And ultimately, what I love about business is I get to meet the people I impact. And it's kind of this canvas where I get to be an artist that gets to create these things, but see it impact people's lives. So I directly relate to it and I can make course corrections and there's things that I could do. And, you know, Apple's going to have a hard time. I know you were talking about Apple doubling in value and size because they're so big. Our businesses, although sizable, we have a chance to have a 50% gain in one year. We have that chance because there's still market share there. And so scaling our businesses is one of the best ways, because let me say it this way. People are taught to live within their means. People are taught that all the time. What they're not taught is there's three ways to do it. The first way to do it is to cut expenses. And sometimes we cut the wrong expenses and we get in a scarcity mindset and a saver's mentality that isn't about value creation and service, it's about survival. And that's a very slow path, like the millionaire next door. That book's all about, if you'll live like a miser, you'll never have quality of life and you'll die one day and within 16 months, your heirs blow the money. It's not a true legacy. The two other ways to live within your means though is efficiency, which is keeping more of what you make, like I was teaching with taxes and interest and those kind of things, or expand your means. How do you expand your means? Impact more people or more deeply impact the people you're currently serving. And a business is an amazing vehicle to do that. I see. What would be your advice for people who are starting to save? You've accumulated six months worth of living expenses, and now you're starting to see that income grow. So we're talking to the average person between 30 and 40 listening to this podcast. How should they utilize that money? Surely, you know, yes, they can start a business on the side. They can freelance or something, but what's the best way? Yeah. So I like to then take the additional and find a way where you can boost your returns and just give up a tiny bit of liquidity where maybe I can get to my savings account in a day. My cash flow banking is what I call it, which is the same thing like GE did in the 1950s or Warren Buffett did from 2000 to 2002 or how Walt Disney or JCPenney funded their businesses is they stored their cash in a place that the banks put their reserves, which is cash value overfunded insurance, because now you get four or 5% tax advantaged versus, you know, 1% taxable. Now, if you live in Australia, they don't allow it anymore, but you could go to the United States or Canada and set up something like this just because... I actually think it's kind of fair. The Australian government said it's unfair that you don't have to pay taxes, but there's big lobbyists in the United States and Canada to be able to do this. Tell me, what is this again? What is this vehicle again? It's simply a life insurance contract that emphasizes cash value. There's multiple ways to do it. One's called private placement if you're really wealthy. Another way is just an overfunded whole life so it has a lot of cash in it that goes right to the tax advantages. And because it's in the insurance contract rather than a bank, the government treats it different, even though it's cash that you can access. So it pays a minimum guaranteed interest rate in most cases of 3.5 to 4%. So you're doing much better than a savings account, but you're also getting this thing. And without going too deep too quickly, I like to think of what if I could buy net worth rather than have to build it? Sometimes building net worth takes time, takes risk. Well, if I buy this death benefit, for example, 
that's guaranteed to pay out because it's guaranteed to be around one day longer than me, I figured out ways that I can spend that while I'm still alive. So think about this. Like I could have a very safe contract that I could get 10 to 15% return after tax because of having things work in unison and coordinated versus individual. So look, I know that this is like, I'm going down a rabbit hole all of a sudden, but it's what I discovered the Rockefellers had been doing for six generations. And when I said, okay, well, what are the good things the Rockefellers do? Because dude, the Vanderbilts had more money than the US treasury at one time. Think about that. They're that gangster. They have more money than the US treasury and they squandered it 54 years after the first son of Cornelius died. And so why did it get squandered? Because they didn't have the right methodologies. Well, the Rockefellers are on their sixth generation of passing on wealth. 153 families benefiting from a trust that still donated $50 million to charity. One of the things they did was they created these death benefits that replenished the trust so that they could be the bank for the future generations rather than paying interest to financial institutions. And so for me, this is a place I store money and I create a tax-free event when I die that gives me the ability to spend more while I'm alive and enhance my quality of life without bankrupting my family. Okay, you just totally geeked out on something over there, and I can see the excitement in your face, but I am lost. How do we start? Okay, so all you're doing is taking that money that's in that wealth capture account, having an automatic transfer that goes into a cash value-based policy. Okay, and where do we find a cash value-based policy? So there's about 20 main companies that are really good at it in Canada, like Canada Life is really good. In the United States, you've got Mass Mutual, Guardian, Northwestern Mutual, New York Life, a lot of these big companies that are called mutual companies, meaning they're not sold on the stock market. They're owned by the policyholder. And they design it where you can put extra cash into this without having any tax on the growth inside of it. So all it is is a different allocation of cash that's sitting in a savings account versus cash that's sitting in a cash value life insurance policy. And you see your cash grow by three to five percent year on year. Yeah. And, you know, it could be a little bit higher than that, but interest rates have been relatively low. Like I have one that did six percent because I've had it for 20 years. It's kind of been my never fail me strategy. And what's cool about that cash is I've used it to build a TV studio before when I launched Killing Cigarette Cows. I've used it to buy a business in 2014. I've used it to buy cars. I've used it to buy real estate. And then you can pay it back anytime that you want because you can pull it out and put it back in. And when you pull it out, you said there's no taxation on it. Exactly, zero tax on that growth. And then you can stuff it right back in there so you can use it again. So it becomes kind of like your own banking mechanism, your own way to finance things. Are there two or three companies you can recommend that we can look into in the US and Canada? Yeah, Canada Life in Canada, Mass Mutual, Penn Mutual, or Guardian in the United States. Okay, Those and is there a website or a resource, or perhaps your website where you yeah. break this down further, where people can learn more? Cashflowbanking.com is the best site out. Okay, pulling it up right now. I'll repeat that, it's cashflowbanking.com. Do you own this website? I provide the content and I license that website to another organization. So like my mission is to get 1 million people liberated and economically independent. And so one of the ways I do that is I provide information and content and value to organizations that I share values with. I can make money from that website. Yes, I don't own it. Perfect. So what you're saying is we should look at cash flow banking, take our savings and put it in cash flow banking. And we should also look at figuring out how we can create some sort of business vehicle that we can extract 18% from, from profits year on year. 
Yes. And let me say like the philosophy and methodology of business, because sometimes like I love that you didn't go get a bunch of investors, right? You built mine by the way you did. I built Wealth Factory the same way. I like to build it upon the momentum and the value of the people that we're serving. So like I'm coming out with a new book. So I'm going to pre-sell that book by getting feedback of the people who are already following me adjusting based upon that feedback, giving them a bunch of resources before it came out because Killing Sacred Cows, I pre-sold 22,000 copies. So I already knew that it was a win before the book came out. And that's the mindset I'm really trying to have people adopt is a win first, then play. Right, that's people a powerful idea, win first, then play. Yeah, and people play not to lose and we know how that turns out. That's not a great life. And the entrepreneurs are addicted to play to win. They'll win at all costs. They'll work themselves like to the point where they have no health, no harmony, no depth. It's just like one dimensional. They do business. Win then play says know what game is worth winning. Know your own definition of success. Understand your quality of life. Lifebook is brilliant at bringing that out for people because they really dial that in in these 12 categories. Right. So now they know what their win is. Well, in business and investing, I like to win first, then play. Think about the NFL. The NFL won a boring game before it was even played. They pre-sold the tickets. They pre-sold all the commercials. They pre-sold all the NFL experience, and then the game was played. We can do that in our own lives. By creating the momentum of the very people that love and trust and want to work with us, being the people that fund. I mean, think about Indiegogo or Kickstarter, all those types of things. It's like you're building the momentum from the very people that love you, and you can do that in business. What you're saying is similar to what Phil Town said in an earlier podcast on investing, right? Buy stocks when they are low, and he gave a formula to calculate when a stock is undervalued. Yep, buy where you win on the beginning, not hoping that 10 years from now it's gonna work out. So a couple of other questions for you, okay? So you said earlier, most people overpay on their taxes. How can you tell if you're overpaying on your taxes? Okay, there's three main things that help you understand this. Number one, I'll call it the three, three, three. Do you have a team? Because if you don't have a team that you're getting them numbers, like you have some type of bookkeeper or some type of communication where they're seeing your numbers quarterly. The second, if you don't meet with that team quarterly. And number three, if you don't have the three right people on the team, which is bookkeeper, strategist, and if you have a business, a attorney. That attorney could be just a corporate attorney or a tax attorney. Now, every three years, if you've missed something, you can go back and amend the returns in the US, for example. Right. But you want to meet with these people quarterly and talk to them. The second thing you'd know is deductions on the deduction side. If you don't have a system to consistently ask, how does this relate to my business? If you own a business or even if you have a side hustle and number two, you don't document it, you're likely to overpay your taxes. Number three, there's something called reclassification. And this is the biggest way people can save tax. Number one, do you have a method to turn active income into passive income for tax purposes? Because passive income can save you up to 15.3% on your taxes. Or can you take ordinary income in your country and make it a lower based income? Like in the US, ordinary income is taxed at 37 and a half. Capital gains is like at 20 to 22%. Number three, do you have tax-free methodologies for the exit of a business? What I love about it is, there's a strategy called a charitable trust where you can actually donate your business or shares of your business to a trust, get a tax deduction. And when you sell that share or sell that business, not pay taxes on the sell. And then when the money's in there, you can take between 5% and up to 50% of the income out of the trust because you're the first beneficiary. The charity just keeps what's left over when you die. So essentially, it gives you a chance to be 
charitable and benefit yourself financially and still benefit the charity. What is that medium called again? Charitable Remainder Trust. And if anyone's ever going to sell a business, you've got to know your strategies for exit before you put it up for sale, because there's ways you can sell it tax-free. And there's some really cool things you can do. Like one thing I'm looking at at Wealth Factory is what if I just sold my business to my employees because I'm teaching them to be entrepreneurs. So we just own the company together. And then I never sell it to an external place because we're the ones that are building it and loving it. And that can be very tax efficient. And the fourth one, the biggest mistake people make around tax is they try to spend money to save money. It doesn't make sense to spend a dollar that you wouldn't have spent to save 37 cents. I like to do something called tax arbitrage, and it's kind of a fancy term, but all it means is if I'm spending a dollar to save tax, I need to save more than a dollar. Like one time I built this building and we were officing there and it had a lot of wall space. So I talked to my tax attorney and we got a hold of this art dealer and I bought $2.2 million of art, but I only paid 300 grand. I only paid 300 grand because I bought the collections from two artists and I promised I would never sell it on the open market that my intent was to display it and then donate it. So now after three years, I could actually donate it for the appraised value. So for every dollar I spent on art, I saved $2 on tax and I got to enjoy the art. That's called tax arbitrage. So I could geek out for you know days and days and days. And more than anything, all I'm trying to do right now is plant seeds of possibility, just so you know to pay attention. Okay, now the next question is, what are some typical things, some common things people are doing that actually hurt them rather than help them when it comes to money? I think that budgeting for most people, because it gets them only thinking about what they could eliminate or cut out, that's probably one of the most major mistakes. Let's talk about that, because you frequently say that budgeting sucks. Yeah. Well, imagine if you spend all this time going, okay, I can only spend this much. Now you got limitation on your mind. I need to reduce this. Now you're thinking about what you can get rid of instead of what you can create. So it puts us in the wrong mindset. It puts us in playing not to lose. And if we save, scrimp, sacrifice, delay, and defer, eventually that becomes who we are as a human being. And ultimately, where's the quality of life? Is that a game worth winning? Is the juice worth the squeeze there? If I spent 10 hours thinking about what I could cut out, I might cut things out that I actually really enjoy. And see, you're your greatest asset, not a stock, not a bond, not a piece of real estate. So if that limits you from investing in yourself, that's going to limit your production. You're never going to be a true investor. Right, right, right. Now, you said investing in yourself. What did you mean by that? Investing in yourself could be everything from, number one, the time you take every morning to have a morning ritual where you're working on exercise, education, and enlightenment. You're literally talking about investing time and money and improving yourself. Absolutely. The events that you go to, the books that you read, the people you spend your time with, and specifically in business, investing in people so you have amazing people around you because that will give you exponential return, processes so those people can perform without your oversight every step of the way, and technological procedures that create automation. That's investing in yourself. That's really, really, really good advice that I agree with. If you are employed by a company, the biggest investment you can make is investing in yourself because that's going to help you with your career trajectory. It's going to help you learn. It's going to help you eventually own your own business. And if you are running a business, the biggest investment is investing in the people. Right. I've had people that came in, invested themselves when they started working with me in 2005, and their income's 10 times higher than it ever was as an employee anywhere else. And then they got ownership stake because of how they showed up and became irreplaceable. Right. Now, the next thing is you say the game is rigged against us. What do you mean by that? All right. Imagine this. If you're a bank or a financial institution, what do you want from people? Money. Yeah. How often? As often as possible. 
How long do you want to hold on to it for? As long as possible. How much do you want to give someone back when they want to withdraw? As little as possible. There's the game right there, man. That's not in our best interests. Like they're in a game of cash flow. They're in a game of risk mitigation. They're in a game of making money on someone else's money, yet we're being taught the rules that are completely different. So it's rigged against us. It doesn't mean it always has to be. We can rig it in our favor by simply becoming cash flow investors and saying, look, once I'm economically independent, which is having enough recurring revenue that comes from my assets or my entrepreneurial based income, an entrepreneurial based income I'm saying is income that comes in even if I'm not in an office or talking to someone that day, I'm still responsible for it long term, but it's not me doing the sales. It's not me doing the coaching or something like that. When that covers our basic expenses, we're now in a place where we could save 100% of our active income. That's 10 times more than most people are. Right. So we have this amazing advantage in economic independence where our platform is built, it's stable, and we can swing for the fences and everything we do because we've won the game. That's what I really mean by that. Right. Like that's the exciting piece. And if we're waiting for 30 years for one day, someday to retire, I think we need to retire the notion of retirement. We should instead retire from things that we hate and embrace a life that we love and stay engaged in a value creation game because if people get to retirement, they don't have purpose anymore. Purpose drives us. They lose control over their money. That becomes scarcity for them. Interest rates start to become a problem if they lower. If taxes go up, their lifestyle goes down. And inflation confiscates our wealth over time. So if people get to that one day, someday mentality, we lose out on the very best years of our life. Like, why not take those experiences and have them along the way and come back to something we're engaged in? You're right. If you're planning life well, you never want to retire. Right. The icons in the world could have retired forever ago, but they stay engaged. Their purpose is bigger than their bank account. Quick summary, what are three to five things people can do immediately to improve their finances? All right, number one, we wanna find out where could you be more efficient with your money and then just set up that wealth capture account. So you start paying yourself first and then on a weekly or monthly basis, make sure you're not spending more than what you've made. The second thing that people can do is classify their expenses. What I mean by classification is four classifications. Number one, destructive expenses. A destructive expense would be we borrow for something, and when the experience is over, we still owe money, but we don't have an asset attached to it. Or recurring expense that we're paying that we're not benefiting from. We eliminate those. Number two are lifestyle expenses. Those are enjoyable. We just pay cash for them rather than borrow. The third expense is protective expenses. Everything from corporate structure, asset protection, insurances, whatever we do to transfer our risk or get that six months of savings set up. And the fourth expense is a productive expense. You spend a dollar, you get more than a dollar out of it. Let's increase those to the point where it makes sense so that we think and become more like an investor. So wealth capture, four types of expenses, and then investigate cash flow banking. People can have my book. I'll give you a download that you can put in notes or something. Like I'm not worried about making the money on that. I'm worried about people implementing that, right? That's why I wrote it. So then looking into that so they can start to capture that. Then the fourth thing, figure out your investor DNA. It's time to become a better investor. Phil and you crushed it on that podcast. If people are going to invest in the stock market, he talked about how do you become a better investor, right? So figure that out so that you know when the time's appropriate. And the fifth thing is start squirreling as much cash away as possible, because when the market turns, there's going to be more opportunities in this next economy than ever before. And I think a distinction that's really important is that when people say they've lost money, money's never lost. It's always transferred. 
it's transferred via the ignorance tax. If someone went to Vegas and gambled and they said they lost money in Vegas, no, no, that money is actually in that building. That money's in those tables. So the same thing happens in the stock market, the real estate markets. People say they lost money, but no, they transferred it to someone who was in the know. They transferred it to someone else. So this time, don't transfer that money through ignorance or through diversification. Get a lot of cash, and when the opportunities are ripe, do what Ted Turner did, and that's the time to buy. That's the time to make money and win, then play. Phenomenal. Thank you for that quick summary. Still a lot of it is over my head. <laughs> but Man, I listen to some of your podcasts, and it's like so deep, and you're just tracking. I call out some finance things, and you're like, what the heck? We're just going to spend more time together. I'm going to make this so simple for you, man. No, I'm seriously going to reread some of your books. I mean, we all have our strengths. If you talk about health and wellness and spirituality and meditation and even Buddhism. I can go crazy deep. I can geek out with someone on integral theory. But when you get to finances, I know I have a lot to learn there. Hey, man, here's the bottom line. From a spiritual meditative standpoint, don't invest in things that create unnecessary stress or that you don't understand. You invest back into yourself you know your business, you know those topics, those are gonna be aligned with your investor DNA. Let's just get your foundation handled. Let's transfer your risk so that you could focus. And guess what? 80% of what we think we need to know about finance is a distraction. We don't need to know about it because it's not who we are. You don't need to know tax liens, hard money lending. You don't need to know real estate. You don't need to know options trading. You never have to listen to that ever in your life. You know your businesses. You have full permission to succeed in those businesses. Let's just get these little pieces handled, all right? So people who want to go deeper into your work, what book would you recommend? You have several, okay? There's Killing Sacred Cows, and then there's What Would the Rockefellers Do? That's the best book for cash flow banking is What Would the Rockefellers Do? It's the most practical book I've written on the steps to take for what we talked about today, step-by-step step in your own kind of format to take time versus, you know, getting bombarded. Where Killing Sacred Cows allows you to understand the nine kind of myths, the very subtle lies that are hard to detect. Once you know them, you know how to avoid the misstep. You know how to avoid the mistakes. So killing sacred cows is like full permission to succeed, right? You can move forward faster. So who would you say that book is for? Killing sacred cows is extraordinarily valuable for every entrepreneur. If you're not an entrepreneur, what would the Rockefellers do is the book that's very much more practical for you. Okay, so yeah. Killing Sacred Cows is more for entrepreneurs, people who own a business. If you're not an entrepreneur, you want to read What Would the Rockefellers Do? And we've got a book that's kind of all over the place, even in bookstores in London called Five Day Weekend. And Five Day Weekend isn't about doing nothing for five days every week. It's about figuring out how you can build a system where you just have to maintain it in order to manage it through basic monitoring so that the next five days you have enough cash flow coming in from your assets or entrepreneurial income that you can choose to create whatever you want without the constraint of money. So it's how to make more money, keep more money, grow your money. And then it, honestly, where that book is okay is the personal development in the fourth section is a little surface level if you're a Mind Valley person. So you can skip that because Mind Valley's gone a lot deeper than the fourth section of that book. Thank you, Garrett. So that was Garrett Gunderson, and you can check out his books, Killing Sacred Cows and What Would the Rockefellers Do? Thank you, guys. And thank you, Garrett. Thanks, man. Thanks for tuning into the Mind Valley podcast. If you found this topic interesting, listen to our previous podcast episodes, all from this past month with Ramit Sethi and Phil Town. It's part of a series we are doing on financial advising.
I'm Vishen Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast. If you like the Mind Valley Podcast, take the next step. Become a Mind Valley member. Imagine being coached daily by the greatest teachers on the planet. How quickly would you transform your health, your mindset, your body? Your relationships? How quickly would you double the size of your company? How quickly would you see your career grow? How quickly would you eliminate any limiting belief that's holding you back and manifest a life that you once thought beyond your dreams? When you become a member, you don't just get access to the greatest education in the world. You become part of a community of 150,000 of the most incredible people dedicated to personal growth. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash now to get started.